Hello and welcome to B2B Better, the only podcast focused on helping early stage marketing teams do better than boring work. My name is Jason Bradwell and every week I sit down with whip smart marketing leaders to talk about what it takes to build a modern day strategy that delivers actual business results, not vanity metrics. Each episode is packed to the rafters with actionable insights and takeaways that you can put into practice today. Let me help you be better than boring. Here we go. So today on B2B Better, I am excited to be joined by Sophie Hill, Marketing Executive at Rothley. How are you doing, Sophie? I'm great, thank you. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to have you on. Um, tell me, who are you? What's your role? Who do you work for? Um, I am Sophie Hill. I'm a Marketing Executive and I work for a hardware company called Rothley Limited, who we are based in uh, a city called Wolverhampton, God's own country, if people, <laughs> people know it. Um, and just a little bit about our company, we sort of, we were quite a small sort of little company um, from the Midlands who specialised in selling metal tubes. So wardrobe rail, curtain pole, um, grab rails. And in the last sort of six, um, sorry, 16 to 18 months, we've had a little bit of a a renaissance as it were mm. so now we've branched out into all kinds of other wonderful metallic interior accessories um so yeah we've sort of you know hardware and diy that's sort of where we sit that's our industry i love this you know most of the guests i have on bb better come from the world of software and um <laughs> you know I, I whenever we think of b2b whenever i think of b2b it's so much more than software you know um definitely everything you know if you look around your desk at the moment like this plastic bottle i'm holding you know a, a company bought this from another company you know um yeah. there's there is a world of b2b out there around you know that involves our everyday items that make our existence possible and they need marketing too um <laughs> so i came across you because you were featured recently in the drum future 50 congratulations Thank um, you very much. tell me a little bit about the story behind this Okay, so weirdly, it was the lovely PR agency that I have recently started working with um, called Democracy. A lovely lady called Caroline actually sent me an, you know, a little advert to do with the uh, drum Future 50. It's like, oh, this sounds really up your street. You know, you should maybe have a look at applying for this. Um, I knew of the drum, obviously, because, you know, I, I love some of their articles and I think in our industry as well, it's just a great tool to, you know, use and connect with other people through. Um, but I'm not one of the most confident people. So, and also any like this, for instance, talking about myself for half an hour, I was like, Oh my God, I hope none <laughs> of my friends hear this. Um, so I wasn't the most excited to fill in a, you know, whole page about myself and my experiences in marketing but I thought mm. no it's a good challenge to go for and um, it again it was quite self-reflective exercise and um, so I sort of like applied for it and you know three months later lo and behold I got listed as one of the future 50 but it was lovely to be recognized in that respect from a confidence point of view but also again like you just said you have a lot of people from the world of software and um, our industry was very underrepresented in that 50 and I think it's so interesting to see the other people listed on that list like some people are doing amazing work but to also know that an industry like our own has a, has a place there and there are things happening um it's really exciting and I think I'm a big believer like my boss always loves the you know phrase of 
you know, you can market an Aston Martin, but do you really have to do much work? Because mm. it's an Aston Martin at the end of the day, that speaks for itself. Whereas, you know, if I work for a little hardware company in Wolverhampton, mm. the sky is the limit. Like if we can push that out there and that I sometimes, you know, if I have a stressful day or something, I just really love the fact that I know that I can make a difference in some way of getting us one step further forward. And I think the Future 50 thing was, yeah, it's personally a great thing for me, but I just love the fact that Rothley could be recognised in amongst those big brand names. So that was a really great opportunity. I love that. And um, your boss is absolutely right. You know, I imagine mm-hmm. in the world of hardware, you know, you're not short for competitors. I imagine that the number of companies out not. there that are <laughs> manufacturing metal tubes, you know, there's probably yeah. a bun- bunch of them. And I think it's really interesting when you start looking at products that in a sense could be considered somewhat of a commodity um, yeah. in that, you know, one product is the same as another product. And then you start kind of competing on price. And is that really a battle that anyone wants to be in that, mm-hmm. you know, what's the power of marketing? What's the power of brand as a way to kind of cut through that noise and position the company as one that there is just no choice but to work with. So um, that's, that, that, that's absolutely right. Alongside the drum future 50, I, there was an article that, uh, or an interview, I should say, um, with you for, within the drum, where you talked a little bit about your role there and what you've been up to um, since you joined um, late last year. Um, and one of those big jobs is taking on a rebrand, um, something that you were mm-hmm. thrown right in the deep end on your first week. Um, so talk me through that. What, what's the project been about and kind of what have been the results up till now? Yeah, so again, kind of saying rebrand in our context was quite interesting because I I didn't really have anything to rebrand if that makes sense there wasn't you know we didn't have like a roughly brand per se and so that's you know that's got benefits and like pros and cons as it were because I couldn't really do any wrong in the way of if I updated it it was an improvement but again I wasn't just going to think like oh it's a font change we'll just stay the same and you know, within limitations, I didn't have any limitations. So I was just thinking, okay, well, we might as well do this well and do it do it now. So I'd had some sort of, you know, advice from obviously my manager and, you know, the MD was really helpful about like setting the kind of alive this sort of like vision. Because just to give you a bit of background as well, like my sales and marketing manager, who's now the sales and marketing director, Simon, um, and my MD, Stuart, we're all relatively quite new in the roughly journey, as it were, if you want to use that term not on the x-factor sorry if you just realized but yeah drop drop the journey word oh god um yeah um so we're all kind of quite new but the company has been around for a long time so we sort of we hit a kind of dip in the road in the roughly history as it were and then we all kind of came on board and we had this big vision of you know updating it and keeping it going for the next 200 years so when I was given this rebrand it was almost given to me sneakily under the guise of like we're launching this new product which happened to be a handrail kit um so this is the new range this is what we this is like a big new product for us but we've got to brand it in a different way I worked with um just a local sort of design agency on that and again I'll probably talk about it in future but get yourself a good team of freelancers if you can they are so supportive and they're the people who are going to bring all this to life 
Um, but yeah, I just worked with him on branding sort of the packaging for this new handrail kit. And through that, that almost gave me an idea for sort of what Rothy should look like across the board, you know, from the logo to the brand pack to the font that we were going to use for, you know, letterhead. Um, and I just took it from there. And I didn't really, again, not coming from a traditional marketing background, I didn't write up a big report saying, you know, this is what the rebrand will do for us in five years time. I was just like, it just looks a lot better. I was literally like, look at that. It's Montserrat. Great. <laughs> Chef's kiss. So I, yeah, I am a big believer in also coming from like my background in retail. I'm very much a marketer of like, I shouldn't look at it from face value, but I'm like, I just want it to look good. That's literally, if I can make the products look good and I can make the visuals look good, that's, you know, half the battle, I think, because then that gives the sales team all the stuff that they need from me to this product's going to look great on your shelves just take it you know you can take it now we'll give you all the support from our side um so I just think it's again I don't want to go too far into it but I think that's something that is changing in B2B I've noticed that when we're getting customers talk to us they aren't just expecting a product anymore they're expecting a lot more than just that product they're expecting all the assets all the visuals everything ready sewn up with a little bow um, ready to just literally take as one unit and then they'll sell it for you. They don't want to do any of that themselves. When you're talking and that's about something that's really exciting. When you're talking about customers, so Rothley is selling the handrail kit to yeah. shops or, you know, who, who is it? Who is the yeah. customer that's looking for all these updated so, visions um, and assets? Again, like we've been from like our, our owner, who's still very much active and um, bless him, Keith's an amazing person. Again, he won't appreciate me saying this, but he's, He's reached a very big birthday that has an eight in it. Um, he's nearly there. Um, but he was sort of saying to me that he was the first person at Rothley to sell into B&Q. So the first B&Q that was, you know, I think it was open in 1979, I think around that time. Don't quote me on that. But um, he put the Roth Rothley first range, went into the first B&Q that there ever was. Um, and he was sort of saying... That was like an incredible piece of history for me. But again, we still sell to B&Q. And that's not just because of like a branding thing. That's just due to like a relationship with that, that like customer. And I think that's a lovely thing that we've still got that relationship with B&Q. Um, but yeah, we do sell into a lot of sort of, you know, we call them obviously Dutch sheds. So, you know, your bread and butter stores like B&Q, Homebase, Wix, we sell into like those sorts of customers. But then more recently, we've seen a, especially after the pandemic, of course, a huge swing onto online retailers as well. And sure. um, so we've had more and more customers, even if, say, they haven't put it in a, if, even if they don't have a storefront, we've seen so much interest from online retailers. And we've just literally um, recently listed on Costco. They've taken it in some stores and online. Amazing. But I won't speak to a customer now who doesn't want to who just wants to put it in store a lot of the time they're like right we'll take it in store and we'll take it online so i think that's again we as a company have always had a really good relationship with like we want to take our product in store that's something that i hope will always carry on but i think more recently with what's happened with guys just hold on a second what if you can't have your store open mm. where do you go so i think that again has almost been I think the pandemic 
sort of cut off a lot for us and made us rethink, but then also benefited us in a lot of ways because it really did make us think all that money we're investing in, like our imagery and um, our branding, you know, that's so important online. And when people are, you know, looking through uh, websites, if it stands out from a visual point of view, you know, that's the one good thing on like your B&Q website. I think mm. sometimes you can, because there's such a wealth of products, it just gets over what you want, something that can literally just go, oh, wow. You know, it's like an aspiration, isn't it? Rather than just a product image. And that's what we're trying to do with all our new ranges as well. We're not just selling a product to say a B&Q or a, a home base. We're selling, this is what you could create in your home if you yeah. have a Rothy product. I, 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 I love that. And, and um, you know, I think the pandemic has force a lot of b2b companies to reevaluate their approach in your case obviously brand, branding has been you know a, yeah. a big focus point you know for me uh, and the company i work for for us it's been our relationship to events and trade shows and conferences and things like that you know historically it's been a backbone of of our marketing strategy um but when these big trade show big booth conferences no longer uh, are no longer happening, you know, where do you spend that money or how do you rather, I should say, how do you continue to reach your customers when you can't actually yeah. be there in person with them? And of that's, course. that's forced a shift to, to focus on digital and social and content and what have you. So, you know, this pandemic has shifted um, or has been has forced a shift in, I think, B2B's collective mindset um, and accelerated things that inevitably, inevitably were going to happen anyway, um, a digital transformation, mm. visual branding transformation, if you will. Um, you know, I, it really coming across to me how much emphasis that the visuals and, and the imagery and the branding has played um, in Rothley's journey since since you joined. Um, there's me dropping the word journey like I'm on X Factor. Look at, <laughs> look at us go, huh? Um, that, was my, that was my fault. You, I, you, I started you, it off. You've started the snowball. I um, know, how, God. How many, how many journeys can we get into this podcast? <laughs> um, uh, for someone who's listening to this episode and they're saying, you know what, actually, our, our, our style, our brand is looking a little bit stale. Um, we need to do something to pep things up. You know, oh, you lost me a little bit. Oh, sorry, I lost you then. Just, no, yeah. you're okay. It's my signal. I'm in rural France. It drops out like every five minutes. Um, <laughs> Uh, for, for someone who's looking for some tips on how to evolve their visual identity and their visual style, where would you start? Like what, what tips do you have there? Um, so again, I am a big believer in, you really have to at first look at your business, look at the product that you're selling, look at your history. Are you a new company? Are you an old company? I think, again, you have to drill down, you know, be very sort of, indulgent and have a look at you know who are you actually working for what do you want your customer to think when they hear your name what are you synonymous with um what's your industry what are your competitors doing as well because you don't just want to create exactly the same brand or visuals as somebody else because you're just that's that is just a waste of money just I'd rather you keep with the style of branding and mm. call it retro mm. um so I think it's <laughs> That's what we did where, again, I, I think it helped that I was new. So obviously I hadn't come in roughly thinking, but this is how we've always done it. There's nothing wrong with that. But I think you do, as you get more and more embedded into something, you become quite introspective and you're not, again, aware of what's going on around you. 
So I came in and just thought, oh, that font's a bit dodgy. Mm. And it just started from there. And I thought, oh, okay, great. Change it all. How does it look on social media? Roughly had no social media. I didn't have anything to just rebrand in that sort of respect. That was that was great. But I, I would just say to anybody that, again, trust your gut. If you are looking at it and it's niggling at you, it's not right. Mm. So you're, I think it's difficult for brands, especially now. I know everybody's budgets are tight. That's another thing. A rebrand doesn't just happen overnight. It's very difficult. It takes a lot of money and time and effort. But again, you're investing in your business in a way that you're only going to have to rebrand like that will there will come a point where you have to rebrand so you might as well do it and then build it up with all the new assets mm. all the new you know letterheads everything like that rather than spending money on it and then thinking do you know what that's a waste now that we've got this new rebrand we can't use any of those catalogs or use any of you know that pos so i think that's something that you should know your business inside out if you if you are embedded in that company if you're working for it so if you are posed with, you know, a rebrand, again, the people who are maybe, it happened with us, I wasn't really asked to rebrand roughly. It was, I was given the task of creating the branding and the packaging for a product. And then obviously it just stemmed from there. Okay, why stop there? Let's let's start building it out from that point. Um, but yeah, you shouldn't have to wait and think if if you're the marketer in a business and it's B2B and your manager hasn't said, let's do a rebrand, you know, maybe if it's niggling at you, you should start, you know, coming up with some ideas, posing the idea and thinking, oh, you know, this looks a lot better than this. It's, you can kind of sneak it in, can't you? I don't think it's something that has to be like, we've rebranded guys. Yeah. Massive billboard. Let's tell everyone because you can just do it. People will respond. People will know that you're that company, but you're probably going to hook in a hell of a lot of new customers because you're this like fresh new brand. We have that at the moment. We've got sort of some customers who have known us for a long time. And then we have people who think we're a new brand because they haven't seen us before. And that's the thing of our LinkedIn and our social media, when we launch, say our Instagram, um, more recently, a lot of B2B brands have started coming onto Instagram, but before it was very few and far between a lot of B2B marketers are thinking, what's the point of having an Instagram? Because you can't click on that link and shop it. Yeah. But no, you should have an Instagram because it's more brand reiteration and you can showcase your products yourself. And again, like for instance, LinkedIn, that's a great tool because I know that people who work for our customers are going to see our work and think, oh, that's a nice product. Maybe we should list that as well. But going to their customers and thinking oh that's that's an amazing product where can I get that oh have you got have you got this in stock and it's kind of planting that seed so I think it's branding with b2b I think people fall into that trap of thinking well it's not really important for us because it's important for our customers they're branding it to their customers Mm. but no that's that's not good enough anymore you have to show your customer just take this. It's already branded. You can go off and sell it. Yeah. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And, um, I think, uh, t- to your point, the, the, the word rebrand can seem monumental 
you know, if you're coming yeah. into a new business and, you know, you know, something needs to change and you're a little bit worried about using that word with a CEO who perhaps may not have the appetite for like a full mm -hmm. soup to nuts. Let's rip everything up and start again. Um, a rebranding exercise, but it's just like with everything, you know, in, in, in B2B where, where you work for companies where you are trying to make a change in terms of how you run your marketing, um, function, start small, right? If you're not quite, if you're not quite sure yet that there's going to be a huge appetite for this kind of exercise, start with something that you can get some quick wins on the board. It's low hanging fruit. Ideally you can find someone within your business outside of marketing who also can buy into the idea and there's some sort of mutual benefit. You know, I think social media, you know, you, you probably have a fleet of salespeople out there who are selling Rothley, um, Rothley wares. You know, if you're trying to hypothetically build a case on why LinkedIn is now the channel of choice, you know, work with some salespeople, you know, help them create some content, become uh, advocates for the brand across their own personal social media, get some wins on the board. Um, and then you yeah. can kind of establish that credibility, take it back to your CEO and say, look, there's, there's something here, you know, I've done, I've done the work, I've done the, the, the exercise, I've got some results let's put some more budget behind this and continue pushing it and see where it can go. And then, you know, a year later, maybe a full rebrand or something is, is on the table. Exactly. I think that's really interesting what you just said there about, you know, getting your sales team to get on board with what you're doing, because I, I did feel only from, you know, a, a couple of the people, but when I first arrived, it was like nuking on the block, changing things up, you know, um, it, it had been, you know, it wasn't really marketing wasn't something that Rafi had heavily invested in before just because it was that old-fashioned thing of like they had good relationships with their customers and you know I'm not doing that down at all it was very much that way of was, oh we worked with them for years that you know people don't work like that anymore so having to you know make a big deal and make a splash on social media it was difficult to get people to realize look I'm not just pestering you to post things there is a reason why I want you to like take ownership of this, but I've sort of had a lot of support from certain members of the team who, you know, have always got my back with, if they're doing anything on the road, they'll send me a photo. I don't know whether this could be useful for social media. You know, I've got a lot of the guys from say like the warehouse, I've got them on board with, you know, getting little bits of content out of them and, you know, even silly things when they were like clearing snow video of one of them making a snow angel you know just breaking up that like content it's just making it's a great way of actually making marketing seem like something that everybody can be involved in and I think that's like you've just said there that costs nothing to create that sort of content yeah but it's just again it's just building your brand and building that almost feeling around it where you can say we're roughly or we are so and so um but it's giving people that little bit of ownership of like a rebrand, for instance, like you said, can be very, seem very scary, but it's not about, you know, having that full going, the full blown thing. It's just drip feeding that idea of, okay, we have made some changes and they're good. You know, this is to benefit everyone, but everybody can get on board with it. Everybody can make a contribution. So I think that's something that it's an interesting point in itself in terms of where do you sit within kind of a company I think again with b2b maybe not so much in sort of b2c because it is you know usually kind of what marketing and sales are one and the same thing 
that in a B2B business, you can fall foul of that little trap thinking marketing is a very separate function Mm. to sales because sales is like, you just give me the product and I'll get in front of these people and I'm on the road, you know, I've, I've got my customers and I will sell to them, but it's kind of getting those sales agents and people who you're trying to help to realize that some of the functions that you're putting in place, you know, it's not to alienate you or the work that you do in any way, shape or form. It's actually to help you because when you sell that product, it, you know, it's one and the same thing, isn't it? I'm making it look like that. So it's easier for you to sell it. And I think that's knowing that you've got a really, you should create that strong link between those two departments and give feed into each other, get information from sales in terms of, you know, if you're spending money marketing a product that sales really are struggling with, what can you do to help each other in that respect? Absolutely right. Sales, sales and marketing. I was actually just talking to someone about this today, um, a B2B sales, uh, B2B enterprise salesperson and um, two sides of the same coin, you know, especially when you're working with a product or a service that can't be sold without uh, someone getting involved, you know, so like SaaS, for instance, you know, you can, you can put in your credit card details, you know, with certain products and never actually speak to a salesperson, but be on your merry way in terms of using that that product or service. Um, when, when there is that layer in the middle from a customer discovering a new product and actually becoming a customer of that product. Um, and that layer is, you know, picking up the phone, actually talking to a salesperson, you've got to have harmony between those two Mm -hmm. departments. You've got to be operating with the same mindset and figuring out ways that you can both mutually benefit, um, from, from each other's expertise. When we were planning this interview, we were talking a little bit about how the buyer demographic, um, that Rothley is, uh, is going after is skewing slightly, um, Mm -hmm. that, uh, buyers are becoming younger, um, uh, they're skewing more towards kind of female buyers. How can brands like Rothley tackle changing their approach, um, to reach a demo that perhaps has never heard about them before? Yeah. So I think that's, again, kind of something that especially after the pandemic was seen as I don't know whether that was a coincidence but there just seemed to be a accelerated that process of new buyers coming in and being younger like you said there's a lot more females getting into sort of the buying categories in hardware um the one thing that obviously I don't know whether you know or other people know hardware as a category within DIY is a very very under you know underprivileged like category in terms of it doesn't get the best attention buyers I think we've even had buyers say that you know that's the job that nobody actually wants to sit within because it's just you know pieces of tube or you know there's nothing really exciting or like brackets and then you know I can I can understand that to a, a certain degree but again those are the things that everybody has in their homes like it's such an everyday item why not brag about the fact that you know you've made an everyday item so something that's actually really quite stunning or decorative or you know those everyday items like a door handle for instance you know get somebody get that to be like a feature in somebody's home rather than just something that you think oh I'll just put it in functional or whatever mm. you, these are the categories where people can come in such as you know marketers or and because we've literally got nothing behind us thinking you know nothing to live up to you can change the game very easily in those categories so 
when we speak to younger buyers, I think a lot of them are quite hungry to do that, where whether it's from an environmental point of view or, a, you know, let's get some great new colours, they want to have that conversation. They want to start changing things up and, you know, making it their own. And, you know, that's what we have obviously tried to help with. But we have noticed that they're coming at it more from a point of view of, this is what I would want in my home personally, but I can't find it available in the market. So maybe that's something that I could bring into our category, bring into my store, and then it is available and there's no competition. You know, that's a win-win for everyone. However, we've got, it's it's difficult because we sort of have 50-50 where we've still got those very traditional buyers that we speak to who they've done something the same way that they've done for 20 years. Mm-hmm. They're not going to get changed. It's a very difficult process. If, if they do agree to change it, it's very long-winded and drawn out when we want to move quickly. Um, so, you know, we still have to accommodate that sort of way of thinking. But again, with the pandemic, like we just said about everything really pushing forward and accelerating what would have happened inevitably, um, we've seen a big change and I think people like that can't afford to be like that anymore. So it is the sort of young upstarts who are, you know, more savvy, I think, um, and engage with those products themselves who want to change it. But that's something that we haven't seen a problem with from our respect because we were doing so much work. Part of my job it comes into, but we were doing so much work before just consumer research thinking, Hardware is a category that has been gone untouched for so long. Mm. What are people going in there for? And you think when you're buying, for instance, a curtain pole, customers are buying a silver curtain pole, but it doesn't match anything in in their home. Why are they buying silver? Well, they're buying it because there is nothing else available. So it's, we wanted to, we've changed the game in terms of color matching. And that was a big thing, you know, a big campaign that we really pushed so when we do start talking to those buyers who are thinking, why is this also over, you know, and it doesn't match. We've got taps over there in our kitchen department that are copper. So why haven't we got anything to match it? They're finding us or we're finding them and they're going, oh my God, you're the people that we've been looking for because that's what we want to push. Let's move quickly. And that people like that are great. And we love working with those sorts of brands. The other side to that as well, it's quite funny is when we've spoken to sort of those categories, because they are so used to being pitched product from companies that haven't moved forward or who are just selling the same thing again and again. We've had conversations with buyers within that category who will come to them with a product and go, have you thought about selling this? And they've gone, oh God, like I've got, I've just bought some of those. And then you're always thinking, well, wouldn't it be a good idea if, didn't you think that you might want to, so it's like is that yeah and you're sort of like looking thinking like yeah do you do you want to sell these then and so it's yeah it's it's very very I think it is changing for the better but it's just I don't think it's like a one-size-fits-all I think you know some buyers are obviously just gonna have to bow to obviously a higher power as well so I know Mm. sometimes they want to change the game and they can't for whatever reason but I think there's more factors that are more positive and hopefully you know at roughly the the big challenges that we're trying to like push forward with are obviously this idea of color matching and having much more choice for the consumer and also our environmental efforts is something mm-hmm. that we really really try and push hard we've removed you know a huge amount of plastic from our supply chain we on any new products 
we're trying to eradicate that completely where we can. If we are using any plastics, it's sort of like a PET, which is recycled and recyclable. Mm. Um, and that's something, again, that I think even if the buyers were resistant to that before, whether it's governmental policy or other factors that after the pandemic have become even more, you know, we need to look after our planet. I think they are wanting to work with us because they know that we're not going to add to that problem. So I think it's, yeah, the buying categories, that's, you could do a podcast on that in itself. It's so interesting how so many different people have different attitudes on that, but hardware as a sector in general with buyers, I think it's a great time to be a buyer in hardware because if you're hungry to change something and you want, if, if you want a little bit of recognition, be in hardware because you can make an impact there and be like, oh my God, have you seen what so-and-so's brought in in the hardware category? That's like, who thought of doing that? Because it, that's, it's so, it's just, you're going to a and q in the hardware category, you know you're in the hardware category because there's just dust on it. Yeah. So it's, it's something like that. It's just very sort of like untouched and it's brilliant from our point of view that we can then go into those businesses and we can both change the game together. Hmm. Incredible. You've obviously come into Roth Leeds and taken it quite by storm, shaken things up um, for the better, it seems, but <laughs> you clearly aren't done yet. Uh, what would be your dream campaign or channel to work on in the company? Oh, I think it's, it is very, very difficult to sort of pinpoint it to one in particular. I think we are doing a lot of work, obviously. I've just sort of previously touched on it to do with like our environmental message. And I think if we could try and drill down a way of completely removing plastics from our supply chain, that would be something that I think, again, it's one of those industries where people wouldn't expect it from us. Um, and I think if we could, you know, if we could make that statement of, you know, there's like no plastics in any of our packaging by the year so-and-so or, and like actually achieve that, I think that would be magnificent. Um, again, from an environmental point of view as well, we've done a lot of work on it previously, but trying to remove hexavalent chrome from the supply chain as well. So that's something that we're massively on in any of our NPD now, we don't use chrome um, or any chrome plated products because in the unregulated um, sort of plants that you know that chrome is coming out of and those chrome plated products and because there's no regulations in sort of you know asia or um or china that the fumes that are coming off sort of the plants that obviously where they dip the products to coat them with chrome all of those gases can is actually carcinogenic so there's this you know it's briefly touched on the kind of erin brockovich thing and where it got into the the groundwater CR6 plus that's the sort mm. of chemical equation for it and um, we obviously have done so much work to kind of make sure that our new products don't touch chrome at all just so that our consumers here know that there's no nasty in our products whatsoever but it's just making people more aware that you know we're trying to scale back all our chrome products where we can we completely change the game on those and that's something that if we could remove it from the the chain completely um, and you know try and work with our customers as well as like finding a replacement we've done a lot of work already in all our chrome products we basically we're trying to replace with stainless steel um which is actually a better product and a more durable product and i think it looks better and um, it's pretty much you couldn't tell the difference just by looking at it but that's something that a lot of consumers have just thought 
oh, well, we'll take that off you because it looks the same, but, you know, there's no chrome in it. I think if we could try and work with just getting that gone completely, I think that would be a, an absolute, like a really massive win for us and our customers because I think it's just great to think that any changes that a business can make to make themselves slightly more environmentally friendly, I think that can only be a, a good thing. 100%. Such our topic right now. It's not always about making the product uh more functional or, or better necessarily, but just making it safer and, um, yeah. you know, uh, better for the environment and the world that we all live in. Very powerful message. Definitely. What do you think is the biggest change in how B2B companies are going to market themselves in the next five years? And, you know, you've touched on that a little bit from the hardware sector. Um, so yeah, you know, five years from now, fast forward, how, how is hardware marketing itself differently to today? Um, again, I think the acceleration, you know, of, selling that sort of sector of product online is only going to continue. I think beforehand, again, harder as a category wasn't something that a lot of people thought you could sell online because people wanted to engage with it and go into a physical DIY store because they knew that that's what they wanted. Whereas people now are looking on Pinterest, they're looking on Instagram thinking, oh, you know, that blogger's just done this DIY hack using this product. That's what I want to achieve. Where can I get it from? Google, they'll just buy it from the, the first one that comes up on the search engine. And um, that's where their competitors are going. So from a marketing point of view, that's where we need to be prepared, that that's where businesses are going. And again, we've invested, started investing in not just our imagery, but videography as well. I think videography and, you know, paid promotions with bloggers or interior influencers, that is how eventually a lot of people will end up doing business that I would predict that some businesses are even going to surpass the stage where maybe they don't even have a website. Maybe they just sell through TikTok or Instagram. However, that's going to happen. It could happen in the next five years. You know, that's how people are finding product. That's how people are gaining their, where they're gaining their inspiration from. So I think it's B2B businesses at the moment, not many of them are investing in those online channels, their social media enough because they think that that's their more, they can take a back seat on that because they're selling the product to the people who will then have their social media and then push the product. But no, the onus is on the supplier now. I think we're getting customers speak to us like, we want you to do our display unit. We want you to do all our online imagery. We want you to size it in this way. We want mm. you to do an online advert. And it is very much like, it's all on you guys. We, we can take your product, yes, but you you do all of that we'll just list it for you and i think that's that's something that you know just that drive online and as as customers get younger they're more likely to shop online not going mm. to a physical store hardware stores in general is there a need for an actual bricks and mortar store anymore i mean i hope there is and obviously having worked in retail i'm a huge advocate for visual merchandising and going in physically to interact with a product but with the rent and you know wages for a team of staff if you can put all of that online and cut your overheads i think that's the way that category is going to go so we as marketers have to understand that a physical brochure for instance isn't going to make any difference to a customer in that way when you're selling it online how how are you selling it online do you have a video of how to install it rather than just a set of instructions mm. um I think that's, you know, everything like that and, 
you know, making it sort of customizable for the consumer, making it attractive, it's all going to be on, yes, okay, you can do that physically, but it's got to translate online. So I think that swing of some B2B businesses, I think, will actually be forced themselves to have a B2C channel in some capacity because eventually there's going to be a push and pull of who does it first. And if they're not giving their customers what they need, the customers are just going to turn around and go, well, we'll, we'll go with somebody who can give us all those assets. Well, particularly particularly to, to, to your earlier point about the kind of environmental impact, you know, of the kinds of products that, that you guys sell and, you know, your, um, your impact on, on, the, on, the, on the climate. Um, more and more customers, obviously, more and more consumers, I should say, are becoming aware um, and prudent around their decisions in terms of what they're buying and doing their research, not just on, you know, the, the, the company that's selling them the good, but the entire supply chain that kind of comes before that product even landing on a store virtual or, or physical. Yeah. So, you know, to your point there, I can definitely see a use case as to why, you know, having an Instagram channel that's really pushing hard your um, environmental approach and how you're reducing plastics and you're not using Chrome products would be super important and beneficial to helping that uh consumer ultimately make a decision whether or not they buy it directly from you which they wouldn't they'd buy it from one of your buyers but um you know still they're concerned about where that product's yeah, come from of course. right yeah and i do think that's something where again b2b businesses do need to understand that because you know if they're selling to a customer their customers are going to want to know where that product's come from and they're going to want to trace it back and i think the person in the middle which is you know our customer they are going to start turning around soon and only going with people who can tell them exactly where it comes from, can tell them what's in their product, what's in their packaging. And I think, again, I don't want to say that only young people care about the environment. Of course, it's nothing to do with that. But, you know, as homeowners and DIYers get younger, I do think, like you said, they're probably getting a little bit more socially conscious about where their products are made. And I can kind of see or predict a little bit of a, you know, fast fashion was that was the hot topic that was kind of a huge thing where are your clothes coming from you know as somebody made that in a sweatshop you know who's not paid a living wage that kind of shift might come into sort of the interiors market where those bloggers who have got a fashion account and a home account if they knew you know that they just brought that box took you know 50 years to start decomposing mm. or it would just end up in landfill would they want to make that purchase or would they want to buy the one with completely recycled packaging but they sort of I know what you were saying there when they're a bit more discerning about where their products come from I know that I would search tooth and nail online for a product that I knew wasn't harming the environment rather than just taking the easy option mm. so that's something that I for the the one that's in the store that's not good enough anymore they will start thinking well we won't buy yours we'll go and find one that doesn't you know harm the environment and i think they have to keep up with that demand for you know more socially conscious products and that's where maybe hardware as a category isn't working as hard as say fashion for instance where they're trying to be a bit more like we're going green by this date or something because there's been more of a media storm around fashion and the environmental impact it makes perhaps the next thing or the next hot topic is how interiors and the interiors market affects the sort of the environment that we're living in and 
post-pandemic, I think that's something that people have spent more time at home. People have, you know, once they've got back into the great outdoors, I think you everybody was feeling a little bit more conscious of the fact that, you know, we're lucky to be here, guys, and we can't carry on the way we're going because there won't be these beautiful parks and places that we've been able to enjoy whilst we've been at home. You know, we want to preserve these places, and that's why I think the environment is something that, for me, every new product or everything that we push will always have that in the back of our minds of, okay, what impact is this also making? Yeah, absolutely. Sophie, I've loved this interview. I, uh, I love what you've done at Rothley. I love your whole philosophy and approach to, you know, how B2B companies can do better marketing. It's very attuned with how I see the world. Um, I definitely want to bring you on for a second episode at some point if to talk about, <laughs> you, you, know, you know, to talk about the future of the high street and retail. I mean, that'd be <laughs> a little bit different to, to the usual stuff that I'm talking about in this podcast, but a fascinating subject nonetheless. Um, tell me, who do you think I should interview next on B2B Better? See, it's difficult. I didn't have like a specific person in mind when you asked me that question, but I think it would be a really interesting approach of maybe asking somebody who freelances for a B2B company or you know from more of like a design point of view whether that's you know a freelance digital marketer or a freelance graphic designer and how you know they're a part of that process of sort of they're like one step behind kind of the b2b company that then goes to the consumer i think you know speaking to them about you know if they're designing for how does that if they're designing for b2b sorry how is that a different process to how they're designing for b2c or something like that i think that's always something that's fascinated me because in my head, I don't think you should reapproach really those any differently. But I know people have a lot of thoughts. That could be another podcast in itself, so I won't go into that. I'm just but taking think, yeah, down maybe. all these ideas. I'm writing them I down. Know, yeah. you're, you're filling up my content calendar <laughs> no, for the next six months. Well, um, yeah. What can I say? But that's <laughs> yeah. That's something I think is, you know, I know I couldn't do this without my freelancers that I work with quite regularly. You know, we've got a CGI artists, we've got a videographer, we've got you know a graphic designer. I think they're all really important people in that process. I know some B2B businesses will have them in-house and obviously if you can find one of those, amazing. But I think, yeah, it's interesting to have those relationships with like one, who's the person that I go to to bring those ideas back to the consumer. I think that would be an interesting episode. Couldn't agree more. Sophie, for anyone who wants to learn more about you, to ask you any questions that they may have after listening to this episode, where can they find you? Um, I have a LinkedIn. So obviously um, once this... I'll give you the link, obviously, and you can pop that on there. If not, um, literally feel free to email me at sophie.hill at rothley.com. Love it. I'll drop the link to your, uh, to your LinkedIn profile in the description of this episode. But otherwise, Sophie Hill, Marketing Executive at Rothley, thank you very much for coming on B2B Better. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. That's it for this episode of B2B Better. If you've enjoyed it, you can check out my previous episodes via the link in the description. Or if you fancy getting a nice hot steaming mug of B2B marketing advice on how to build an audience for your brand, you can sign up to my newsletter, The B2B Byte, which goes out every Monday. I'll drop the link to that also in the description of this episode. See you next time.